Good morning, everybody. It's good to see each and every one of you today. It's good to be here in the house of the Lord to worship the Lord with you today. If someone were to ask me what my favorite chapter is in the Bible, I would probably answer Ephesians chapter 1. There's a number of reasons for that. Probably one reason is that when I was in started in college, I decided I would memorize Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, and so I did. Now, don't ask me to quote it. I don't remember it, but uh, for a while, I did could quote it, but when you memorize something, you know it, you spend a lot of time thinking about it, and perhaps that is one of the reasons that I love Ephesians chapter 1, but another reason that I love Ephesians chapter 1 is because it contains so many glorious truths about our salvation. Now I'd like to go there, and, and there's a particular word found midway in this chapter that has our attention this morning. But I want to mention to you just a couple of things about Ephesians chapter 1 as we work down to the verse that I want. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us about the work of God the Father, that he has chosen us. We're elected and chosen in God before the foundation of the world. And then we hear about the work of the Son and his redemption and his dying on the cross for us. And then we hear about the work of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit's applying grace to our hearts and to our lives. And at the each one, end of each one of those three sections here in the first half of Ephesians 1, we end that section with the words to the praise of his glory. So let me show you that as we go through beginning in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Here is the work of the Father as he planned our salvation. He says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, and then here's our praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Here's the work of the Father. We could spend the entire time this morning talking about God the Father and his choosing us to be his children. And when he said that he will make us accepted in the beloved with the full knowledge of God that we would be sinners and that for us to be holy and without blame before him in love, that there would be necessary for us to be cleansed of our sins by Jesus Christ. We could spend a lot of time this morning talking about the work of the Father. And then we get into the next section, the work of the Son. And that begins in verse 7. And it says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, 
which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And then notice again at the conclusion of this section about the work of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, that we should be to the praise of his glory. So here's the work of the Son, that second person of the Godhead, the one who came down to earth, took on the form of a servant, became a man, and died there on the cross for us. And what should be our response to that? Same response we had to thinking about the work of the Father in election. Give praise and glorify God. And then in verse 13, we have mention of the work of the Spirit, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now here's our phrase again, unto the praise of his glory. So here is the work of the Holy Spirit. He applies grace to our hearts. He's the one that gives us the ability to understand and to enjoy the salvation that the Father planned and that the Son accomplished upon the cross. Here's the work of the Spirit. But the particular part that I want us to think about this morning was contained here in the 14th verse. And there's one particular word here in verse 14 that has our attention. That word, earnest. When we think of that word, earnest, what do you think about? You think about, well, when I went and bought a house, when I picked out the house that I wanted, I put down some earnest money. And what that earnest money meant was that that's a token that, yes, indeed, I'll buy that house. Well, this earnest that's contained here in this verse, it is indeed that. But it goes way beyond that. And that's what we want to try to talk about this morning, if the Lord would bless us for a little while. That earnest that we have. Now this word earnest, there's a number of times that the word earnest is in the New Testament. But there's only three times that there's a particular Greek word used for it. It has a very strong meaning. Arbon. Now, if you are a Greek scholar and I pronounce that word wrong, please come tell me. Because I got a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you about Greek words. You know, so, and if you don't know Greek, you don't know whether I pronounce that right or wrong. And I don't either. So, but at any rate, here's this particular word for earnest is different than any other word translated earnest in the scriptures. And there's a very good reason for it. 
because the meaning of this word goes beyond that. It's more than just a token. It's more than just a pledge. It's more than just a security. It's actually receiving a part of the whole. Now, if you can think about buying a piece of land, now, the way we normally work it, you know, uh, if I'm going to pay somebody $100,000 for a piece of land, you know, I go down and I put down, you know, $500, maybe 1000 for my earnest money. If we were really following what earnest money is in the sense, you know what the owner of the land should do? When I put down my $1,000 as earnest money, he should bring in a bucket of dirt from that lot, from that piece of land, and put it out there on the desk and saying, this is the earnest that you're going to get. This is part of what you're going to get later. That's beginning to get the point of what it means by having earnest and earnest money. Now, I want us to notice that there are some people that believe that all this means is the guarantee that we have that we're going to be in heaven forever with the Lord. I want you to notice the progression of verse 13. He said, In whom also ye trusted. When did you trust? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And it says, In whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Ghost. So that sealing and this earnest comes after believing, doesn't it? Isn't that clear from looking at the progression of this verse? That the sealing comes after believing. Now let me ask you a question. Who can believe in Jesus Christ? Who can believe in the gospel? What is the requirement for believing in the gospel? You must have spiritual life. Regeneration had to already have happened. You already had to have been born of God before you can believe. Before you can believe, before you can trust, before you can understand anything about the gospel, it is necessary that you have already been born again, born of God, born from above. That's a prerequisite of being able to believe. We can go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, and it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of God, neither can he understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. A man before the new birth has no ability to understand the things of God, to understand total depravity, to understand fallen man, to understand our need of a Savior, to understand that Jesus Christ came and died upon the cross for us, to understand that we're going to be to spend eternity in heaven. The natural man doesn't understand any of that. He doesn't have the ability. That would be just like taking somebody that is naturally deaf and playing a, a, a recording right in front of them. They couldn't see anybody. They couldn't read lips. They just had the recording. A man that was naturally deaf, and you played a, 
a tape before them of a song or a sermon or whatever, you know what they'd get out of it? Nothing. In the same way it is spiritually. If you don't have spiritual ears, you can hear these things all day long, and they'll mean nothing. You're going to receive nothing. You don't have the ability. But for those of us who are blessed of God to have spiritual eyes, spiritual ears, and spiritual understanding, they mean something. And with that spiritual eyes, with that faith that God has planted in our hearts, we have the ability to understand these things. And with that ability that comes in the new birth, when we hear the word of truth, when we hear the gospel, you say, yes, I believe that. That's what I experience in my life. That's my understanding. That explains what I've been going through in my life and, and the conviction and the weight of sins I feel and the rejoicing that, that I have when I know my sins are forgiven. So you have that right order, new birth, and that new birth, the imparting of faith. And then when you hear the gospel, then you can believe it. And then you can trust in the Lord. And it's after that, after all of those things, then we can experience the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Now that's what verse 13, after you believe, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. But what is that sealing? You know, we kind of referred to that as we sang that last song. As we were singing that, I didn't select that song this morning. Brother Kenny selected it. But I thought how appropriate it is. Blessed assurance. This is a little foretaste of the glory divine. We had, that's a little bit of this sealing. Now think about a seal for just a minute. You know, in the scriptures, and we can even see this in in the world that we live in, I can think of two primary usages of that word seal. The first thing that a seal can be is for identification. You know, back when, when I was growing up, I don't know if this is still true or not, but, but used to when my mother would go to buy something, and she'd go to the store, and she's going to buy maybe an iron or a toaster or something like that, she would look down on the box, and there would be a good housekeeping seal of approval. And if she saw that seal of approval, that was an identification mark that that product had been tested and it was fine. It was a mark of identification that it was a good item. It was a good, good appliance. So that's an identification. You know that you and I have that seal too? We have that seal of identification. It's referred to by, by uh, uh, Paul over in, in Romans um, chapter 8, I believe it is, and, and he talks about over here in, in, in Romans 8, in, in verse 15, he says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. If you are crying in your heart, Abba, Father, do you remember times, and perhaps it's been fairly recent, like, say, 
this morning, crying to God and say, Dear Father, going to God in prayer, going to God in either mourning or rejoicing. If you're crying in your prayers and in your thoughts and your mind and your heart unto God the Father, that is a seal. You've been marked with a seal that you are one of God's. And he said in verse 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Here's part of that seal, a seal of identification. I like the way that it was, was stated over in Galatians chapter 4. In verse 6, we read over there, it says, And because ye are sons, because ye are sons of God, because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if you're crying, Abba, Father, if you're calling God your father, what does that mean? You're his son. You're his daughter. You're one of his. That is a seal of identification. So the sealing of the Holy Spirit, part of that sealing is what happens to us, showing that we're God's children. And by the way, when it talks about us crying to God and calling him Father, is that what makes us the children of God, is by calling him Father? You know, a few years ago, I'm not going to tell you how long, uh, I was born and I was given a name. I was given the name Gail Ferry. That was my name at birth. It's on my birth certificate. I won't tell you how long ago that, just because in the 50s you might think I'm, I'm old. Now, I was given a name. And when I got two or three years old, now, what I'm getting ready to say, I don't remember. But I know it happened, okay? When I was two or three years old, somebody asked me what my name was. And you know what I told them? Gail. Did I not become Gail until I said that that's who I was? No. You know why I told them that my name was Gail? Because it was. I'd had that name since birth. And so it is with us spiritually. When we call ourselves children of God, we don't make ourselves children of God by just a mere confession to God. We make that confession because we are children of God. Now, so we have this ceiling that is the identification. But there's another use of that word seal that we use in our scripture, uh, in, our, in our society, in our culture, and even in the scripture. A seal is for protection. Now, I can remember back when I was a child and, and mama would make some Go out and say, for example, she might get wild plums or apricots or something like that, and she would make some jelly. And she'd take that mason jar, and she would put a seal on top of it. And then she'd put a rim around that seal and tighten it down. What was the purpose of that seal? Now, when I was a kid, you know what I thought it was? To keep it from spilling when I knocked it over. But that's not the purpose of a seal when you're making preserves or jelly. 
You know what the purpose of that seal is? To keep out the stuff that would come in and ruin the preserves. That's what the purpose of that seal was. It was for protection. And you know, that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It protects us. That's one of the seals of the Holy Spirit is for protection. Now, I'm going to read something to you, and I'm going to tell you that I don't understand what I'm reading, but I'm going to read it anyhow. Okay? All right. Now, Revelation chapter 7. Now you know why I'm saying I don't understand it. Right, Revelation chapter 7. Now I understand the important thing about revelations. Uh, God wins. And we as God's children are going to win. Now that's the main thing. But here, Revelation chapter 7 and verse 3. Here's some angels praying to some other angels. And he said in verse 3, here's what the angels cried. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, what is he talking about? We're going to put a seal, a mark that's of protection. Now, that is very similar. What I immediately thought about was when the children of Israel in bondage in Egypt you remember that last plague of the death of the firstborn? And God told them to take that lamb and slay it and take that blood and put that blood on the, the side post of the door and on the lintel atop, uh, which, by the way, looks like a cross, doesn't it? If you take a side post and a bowl across, it looks like a cross, doesn't it? But here was blood. You know what that blood really was? It was a seal of protection. Because when the angel of death came through that night and he saw the blood on the door, you know what that angel of death did? He kept going, going to the next house. It was a seal of protection. You know, there's another seal I can think about. There was a seal made when Jesus Christ was placed into the tomb. And the... A Roman army and some of those people that, that feared, some of the scribes and Pharisees that feared Christ, that uh, were glad he was dead and wanted him to stay dead. All right? That's a good way to say it, I think. They want him to stay dead. And they went to Pilate and said, you know, the deceiver, you know, said he's going to rise again, you know. Let's seal this tomb up. And I'm going to paraphrase this. He said, we want to seal this tomb up, make sure that his disciples don't come in and steal his body out of the grave and then claim that he's still alive. And so Pilate told them to go seal it and make it as sure as they could. So they did. They put that, that stone there upon the, the door of the temple, a door of the, of the tomb, and they sealed it. They set a watch so that that seal could not be broken. And nobody could get into that tomb and steal the body of Christ. It was a seal. It was for protection of, of the contents of that tomb. You know what the problem was? God can break man's seals. You and I, as men, cannot break God's seals. 
but God can break our seal. You know, I take great comfort in that. When I have been sealed with protection from God, no man can break it. Satan can't break it. God is protecting me, and I am safe. You know, I think also when we're talking about the work of the Spirit and the sealing that we have, Here's something else about it. You, you go over to John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, Jesus Christ is talking about sending the Spirit. And you remember the words of Christ. He said, you know, that, that verse 16, he said, I'll pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Verse, 15, uh, verse 17, he says, even the Spirit, and that Spirit is capitalized. It's talking about the third person of the Trinity. He said, Christ is saying, I'm going to go away. When I go away, the Spirit will be here. So what's the work of the Spirit? Now, we've been talking about the work of the Spirit. That sealing of the Spirit, that seal he gives you of identification, that seal that he gives you that, yes, you are being protected by God, what else does the Spirit do? Well, he says here, the Spirit of truth. And then you get further on, and you get down in to verse uh, 16, uh, 26. He says, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost. So here, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost. And the comforter, all these words are capitalized. You know what that means? They're all, talk, they're all talking about a person, the third person of the Trinity. So the first thing that the Spirit does, well, maybe not the first thing, but one of the main things that the Spirit does is the Spirit is the comforter. Have you ever felt like you needed comfort? Have you ever been discouraged and cast down? Perhaps you've thought in your mind, what good is life? You know, life is full of nothing but discouragement and trials and problems. When you see friends and neighbors and even family forsake you and disappoint you, you ever stood in need of comfort? When you've stood at a graveside and you've watched a casket being lowered into the ground and perhaps it was your husband or your wife or your child, have you ever needed a comforter? Have you ever had such horrible experiences in your work or in your school, and you feel cast down and worthless. I think I've probably described something all of us have been through, haven't we? We've all had disappointments and trials, and we needed a comforter. You know, in those times of trials, friends are very important. Friends and family are helpful. 
that nobody can comfort you like God can. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That in a spiritual sense, he comes and he puts his arm around you and says, you're my dear child. I love you. And it's going to be okay. Have you ever felt that comfort from the Spirit? He says, it's going to be okay. I'll get you through this. Things are going to be better. I'll be with you as long as you walk this earth. And when you're through walking down here, you're going to be with me forever and ever in eternity. Nobody can comfort like God can comfort you. But then there's something else that the Spirit does. He says that, verse 26, he shall teach you all things. Does anybody here like to learn? I do a, a tax return for a particular individual. And you know, a tax return, you have to list somebody's occupation. And, you know, some people I put down, you know, they're a, a lawyer, they're a, a, an engineer. They're a homemaker. I learned real quick in accounting that there's a big difference between a housewife and a homemaker. You know, a big difference. Uh, I've got some ladies that'll tell you that if you don't believe me. But anyhow, that's a whole different subject. But I had this one guy that his occupation when I asked him was omniologist. You know, you have a biologist that studies biology. Uh, you know, you have all these different ologists. You know, geologist studies geology. Omni means everything. That's what he does. He studies everything. We should have a desire to learn. But what we should really have a desire to learn is the things of God. Now, I like learning. I, I've loved books all my life. I continue to read. Uh, I'm always picking up new books. To, you know, I'll see a book and I'll see a bargain. I'll buy a book and I'll go put it on the shelf right next to the other 300 books I haven't had time to read yet. You know, sometimes I'm going to get to them. I don't know when all this is going to happen. But, you know, I like learning. But there's another kind of learning other than book learning. We need to learn about God not only in a theoretical aspect from books, but in experience and in our life. And the Comforter teaches us that. The Holy Spirit teaches us that. He'll teach us that, yes, God is in this world. And, yes, you are one of God's children. Yes, God's going to take care of you. And yes, God is working in this world today. And yes, God is in control. He teaches us those things. And you know, those are things we need to learn by experience. And then he says also here to end of verse 26, he says, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Do you realize how important it is to remember, you know, uh, when I was in school, 
remembering things is very, very important, especially on test day. You know, it's very, very important to remember things. But spiritually, we need to be diligent to remember things. And here, this is the work of the Spirit. Helpeth you to remember things. Well, what do you need help remembering? You need to remember the times that God has showed up in your life. Now, I know I said this random thought that hit my mind, and normally I, I run away from random thoughts, but I'm going to tell you this one. Now, I don't watch movies very often. You know, I, I try to watch one just to kind of keep up with what's going on in the world. I try to watch a movie every year or two. And then only when it's out on TV where it's free. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm cheap. But anyhow, I watched this movie one time called Forrest Gump. Y'all remember that? All right. So Forrest Gump has a shrimp boat. And he's out in the boat. And his first mate, who was an old army companion, was complaining because they weren't catching any shrimp. And so the buddy was complaining and said, where is your God? And then I can remember those words that he responded. Later that night, God showed up. And if you saw that movie, you know that a big storm came up. Came up in the sea, and the sea and the boats were going up and down. And all the other shrimp boats were destroyed and sank, except for Forrest Gump's boat. And he came sailing in to port unharmed at daylight. God showed up and saved him. Now, can you look back in your life and say, I went through all these trials and all these problems, then all of a sudden, God showed up. Can you recall a time in your life then? I think we probably can. And when God shows up, that's when we see the power of God. And what the Spirit does, He reminds us of those times. You need to rehearse in your mind all the time. I remember this time when the Lord showed up, I remember this time when the Lord showed up, and I remember this time when the Lord showed up. I remember this time when the Lord got me out of this mess. I remember the time the Lord comforted me and got me through this. You know, we're all sitting here this morning as survivors. You know why we survived? Because God showed up. And the Spirit reminds us of those things. Now, let me go over as we try to close these remarks this morning let's go over to John chapter 7 here's a verse that I've struggled with to understand exactly what it's teaching and the Lord is speaking this is verse 37 of John 7 it says in that last day the great day of the feast Jesus stood and cried saying if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink. And he that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers 
of living water. Have you ever heard that? And this is not the only place in Scripture to talk about the living waters that's coming out of the belly of Christ. You ever wondered what that meant? Well, John's going to tell us the next verse. But this he spake. This he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. So he's talking about the work of the Spirit. When he says, out of his belly shall flow living waters, there's something that the Spirit is going to do that's going to be spoken of here as the living waters. Now, what is this? This, if we go back to our text over in, in Ephesians chapter 1, this is the earnest of our inheritance. That's the living waters. So what does this word earnest really mean? What does it talk about when it talks about the earnest of our inheritance? What well, uh, the earnest is, it means getting just a little bit and just a part of the whole thing that you have later. You know, sometimes you go out and you may borrow money and say, I need money to, to fix my car, so I'll go borrow money on my house. And so my house is a pledge. But that's not getting what this is talking about here. This is more than just a pledge. This is more than just a token. It means getting a little bit of what we're going to have in all eternity. Now, I've heard an illustration used of this word, and I, I like it. I probably can't explain it as well as, as I would like to and like I should. This term earnest here that's coming from this particular powerful Greek word, think about this as an engagement ring. Think of the earnest as being engagement ring. Now, I remember listening to a, a talk show years ago. This lady, name was Laura something, and she was a psychologist, and people would call into her radio program and say they was engaged to somebody. And she would ask a question. Do you have a ring and a date? And if they said no, then she said, you're not engaged. All right? I just threw that in for free. But anyhow, so you think about an engagement ring. And I can remember just a few short, wonderful years ago that I gave my bride-to-be an engagement ring. And when we were together, and, and here she was wearing that engagement ring, I knew that I could look at her wearing that ring and said, she's mine. And during that time of engagement, we had time saying, she's mine and I'm hers. And you know, the old saying was, and maybe you heard this, you know, when somebody would get engaged, you know, some of the friends or whatever or acquaintance would say, you know, well, this person's engaged, so they're off the market now. You know, nobody else can get them. They, they're taken. That's what that engagement means. And so when we were together and had our 
our time of, of when we were courting and, and together there, whether it was in church or, or whatever we were doing, we were enjoying an earnest, a down payment of something that was going to come later. And that's what we are enjoying right now in God's kingdom. We're enjoying a little bit of a down payment. We're in the engagement period. And there's coming a great day when we will be married in that sense to the Lamb. And we'll be with Him in heaven forever and ever. And just to give you an idea, you know what the engagement ring is? If we're enjoying that time of engagement right now, you know what the engagement ring is? It's Christ. Christ. Is that what you look at to know that, yes, you're engaged and you're receiving the earnest of your inheritance? And, you know, there was a time when my bride and I were engaged and she had received that earnest, that ring. But you know what she was looking forward to? And what I was looking forward to was to that day when we said, I do. Actually, I think we said, I will. But anyhow, it means the same thing. We said, I do. That wedding day. And we began our life together of joy and happiness. I'm looking forward to that day. And I'll be in heaven with the Lord. But until that day, I have an earnest that I look to each and every day. It's Jesus Christ. And I praise and honor him. May we rejoice in recognizing the earnest of our inheritance.